Good morning, everybody. Mm. I just totally burned my tongue right there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Does anybody feel like they make these things like too well now? Like seriously, keeps, keeps your drink warm for like 24 hours. Oh my goodness. Good morning. It, let's retry that. It's good to be with you today. Our scripture text today is going to be Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. So you can go ahead and start flipping there now uh, in your Bibles. I don't know about you guys, but I have a really tough time watching the local news. It just seems like every single story that I watch is tragic and it makes me sad. And since it's local, it kind of hits home a little more. So I don't really enjoy watching the local news very much because of the very tragic stories that they usually tell. My dad's not the same way, though. And I should probably rephrase that because I'm making it seem like he enjoys watching bad news, but that's, he's not a monster. That's obviously not the case. It's just it doesn't affect him quite as much as it affects me. And it's good to keep up to date on what's going on in your community. And so he watches it almost every night. And by virtue of that, when I visit home, at some point I'm going to watch the nightly news with him. So the most recent time that I went home uh, back to Sacramento. By the way, Harvest people. My parents attend Harvest as well, so we used to definitely chat afterwards. Um, we, my dad and I inevitably ended up watching the nightly news, and it was the normal stuff. Sad story here, tragic here. But then they threw me a curveball at some point. They included a very genuinely heartwarming story. It was even fairly convicting for me. Uh, I searched online for this story, and I was able to find a transcript of it, and I'd like to read it for us today. Officer Ryan Hollitz is a father of four from Albuquerque, New Mexico. While out on patrol in September of 2017, Ryan came across a woman named Crystal and her companion Tom. When he found them, they were shooting up heroin behind a convenience store. Crystal was eight and a half months pregnant. Concerned with the well-being of the unborn baby, Ryan tried to reason with Crystal. You're going to kill your baby, he told her. The more he talked, the stronger Ryan felt God telling him to adopt Crystal's baby. Three weeks later, Ryan and his wife became parents for the fifth time when Crystal gave birth to a baby girl. But their story doesn't stop there. Rather than sending Crystal and Tom to jail for their drug use, Ryan used his own resources to help the two addicts get clean. Over the last several months, both Crystal and Tom have undergone a 90-day rehab program in which Tom has graduated and Crystal is on her way to graduating and getting back on her feet. Ryan and his family are the very essence of what it means to love your neighbor. Today we're going to be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, a well-known story not only to Christians but to non-Christians as well. In our country, we even have a law called the Good Samaritan Law. This is a well-known story, so we're going to look at this parable, and we're also going to take a look at what it means to truly love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to read our entire scripture text all the way through, and then we're going to kind of go back and look at what's really going on there. Sound good? Uh, I guess it really doesn't matter if it sounds good to you or not. (laughs) It's kind of what's happening either way. So this is Luke 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he also wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All right, so we got the good Samaritan. Now, if you weren't with us last week, Pastor Dean actually preached on verses 25 through 29. That's that interaction between Jesus and the expert in the law. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I would encourage you, if you weren't here, uh, you can visit novachurch.org, Nova Community Church app. You can listen to that sermon for yourself. But what we have is an expert in the law coming to Jesus, and he's seeking to test him. See if he really knows what he's talking about, see if he really is who he says he is. And he asks a pretty straightforward question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the question back on the expert in the law, saying, well, you, you read the law. How do you read it? The expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, love God, love other people. Love your neighbor. Now, this is what's considered the great commandment in the Jewish faith. It's actually a combination of two different verses, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus. Combined, they make the great commandment, which all other of the 613 laws and commandments in the Old Testament hang. This is, in in essence, the summation of all those laws. But the expert in the law doesn't Stop there. After Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly, the expert in the law pushes further, asking, well, then who is my neighbor? And so that's where we get to the beginning of our parable. Notice that Jesus does, in fact, answer the expert in the law's question of, who is my neighbor? But he also kind of 
flips that question on him again. It's not just who is my neighbor, but what does it mean to truly be a loving neighbor, to truly love your neighbor as yourself? So Jesus begins this parable saying that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a very well-known road at that time for being very treacherous and dangerous. Jerusalem was about 4,000 feet in elevation, Jericho roughly 1,000 feet in elevation. For those of you who aren't too good at math, that's about 3,000 feet change in elevation. This is a mountain road, long, winding, lots of terrain, boulders, caves, all of which were the perfect context for robbers to ambush travelers. And unfortunately for the man in this parable, that is what happens to him. He is ambushed by robbers. He is stripped of his clothes and beaten. Now the verb here for beaten um, is a constant verb, meaning they didn't just beat him, but they, they beat him, and they beat him, they beat him some more, and they beat him some more. This guy was beaten into a pulp. Severely bloodied, swollen, very grotesque looking, most likely. And if he wasn't attended to, he was going to die. What happens next in our parable is two men, two highly respected religious men come at separate times. And we're starting to think, if we're hearing this parable for the first time, oh good, the heroes have arrived. These are the people that we would expect to help a man in need. They know, they're close with God. They know the law. They know that part of the summation of the law is loving your neighbor as yourself. But as we read, they do nothing. In fact, they walk to the other side of the road and pass by him. There's a lot of theories as to why uh, these two religious officials would have passed the man in need. Uh, One theory is that they didn't want to risk uh, becoming ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body. In ancient Israel, if you touch a dead body for a certain amount of time, you would be considered ceremonially unclean. They could have been traveling to Jerusalem to the temple. They didn't want to risk it. Another theory is that this could have been a trap. Just like this man was beaten, maybe the robbers were waiting for more people to help this man and then ambush them as well. We're actually not told why these two religious men pass by the man in need. You see, parables only include the most necessary information for us to derive its truth. So the fact of the matter is we can theorize all we want, but what we're supposed to walk away with is we would expect these men to help. They should have helped. They didn't help. So who does help? A Samaritan. I know I don't have to explain this to a lot of you, but for those of you who do not know, Samaritans were absolutely despised by the Jewish people. And there is no exaggeration there. Absolutely despised. Samaritans were, uh, were once Jewish people who had intermarried with people from other nations. A big no-no in ancient Israel. God had set up 
a covenant in which the Israelites were to remain a holy people set apart. In doing so, they would not intermarry with people of other nations, but they did. They also adopted the religions of those people, kind of meshed them together with the Jewish religion, and so you had this weird hybrid religion. The kicker was they believed that God did not reside in the temple in Jerusalem. They believe he uh, resided on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. There's, a, there's probably more reasons why Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people, but these are some of the main ones. And so Jesus, by having the Samaritan be the one who is the true neighbor to the man who was ambushed, is answering that question of who is my neighbor. If even a hated Samaritan can be my neighbor, well, anybody can be my neighbor. All people. And that extends to us today. All people are our neighbors. We are to love all people as ourselves. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice the uh, inclusion of every minute detail of the Samaritan's care for the man in need, because it is lavish. It is over the top. It's whatever superlative you really want to add to it. He concocts a makeshift antiseptic out of oil and wine. He bandages the man's wounds, likely with his own clothes. He puts the man on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, stays overnight at that inn with him. In the morning, pays for the, the fee to stay at the inn. But not only that, most likely for two extra weeks. That's what two denarii would kind of get you at that time. And then he also tells the innkeeper, whatever you need to do to make this man well, do whatever needs to be done. I will be back and I will reimburse you for whatever you spend essentially giving the innkeeper a blank check. And if that isn't a recipe for extortion. But the Samaritan wasn't concerned with being extorted. In fact, he wasn't even concerned with his own travel plans. He dropped everything that he was doing because he saw a man in need. As we are told in the text, he took pity on him. He had empathy and he did everything that he would have done for himself if he had found that himself in the same situation as that man. You see, Jesus does answer the expert in the law's question of, who is my neighbor? It's all people. But he also flips that question to show what it takes to truly love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes what could have been some abstract, heady theological discussion and puts it into real human context. What I find so interesting about this passage is that Jesus shows us what it means to truly love our neighbors. But if we are honest with ourselves, if we are truly honest, there is no possible way we can follow this example at all times. It's, it's truly humanly impossible. You see, we as Christians, we live in this strange tension between the knowledge that we are saved by grace through faith, and it is of no work of our own, 
And yet in James 2, we are told that faith without works is dead. These two ideas do work together, but it can feel like tension in our lives, I believe. It certainly does for me. So when we look at this parable, there tend to be two primary interpretations for its ultimate purpose and meaning. And they kind of reflect this tension, this tension between grace, good works, grace and good works. Um, And it's not to say that one interpretation is the correct one, one's the incorrect one. They actually intertwine pretty well. Um, You'll kind of see what I mean as we go through that. But for the rest of our time, we're just going to take a look at these two interpretations of this parable, see what they have to teach us today. So the first interpretation is what I like to call the social justice interpretation. It's this idea that we see the example of the Good Samaritan. We see the extent to which he cares for someone in need, the ends to which he goes, and it's meant to be an example for us. Therefore, Jesus' charge to the expert in the law of go and do likewise, that charge is extended to us as well. Parents, quick question. How many of you, when raising your children, have taught your kids to treat others as they would like to be treated, or maybe even used the term love others as yourself? Raise of hands, how many? Yeah, easy. It's a really good teaching tool, and my guess is that when you were teaching your children this, your ultimate goal was that they would simply be kind and polite to those around you. I'm pretty sure I'm correct in that. That's a great goal, by the way, to have developmentally where kids are. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of us, we don't mature past this when we get into adulthood. We continue to see loving your neighbor as simply don't be a jerk to each other. In reality, loving your neighbor as yourself goes far beyond just simply being kind or polite to each other, as is evidenced in this parable. In Hebrews 5.12, Paul tells some of his readers, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. This analogy of milk and solid food is one that Paul uses a few times in his epistles. And it's this idea that milk represents the very fundamental, elementary, as we're told in this translation, truths of God. They're easy to digest, just as when a baby is born, they start out eating milk. It's easy to digest. But as a baby matures into infancy and beyond, they start taking on more solid food. And as Christians, we are meant to, as we mature, understand more complex and deep truths about God's word. If I were to parallel this analogy into what we are talking about right now, understanding loving your neighbor as yourself to simply mean being kind and polite to each other is milk. It's not incorrect, but it is elementary. It's pretty baseline. 
We as Christians need to mature past this. As we mature as Christians, we mature to understand that loving our neighbor as ourselves looks more like the example in the Good Samaritan. Dropping our own agenda when we see the needs of another person. Looking at them with empathy and understanding what they need. And doing everything we would do for ourselves for people in need. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And so, brief moment of self-examination here. You don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. How have you understood what it means to love your neighbor as yourself thus far in your life? Both in thought and action. It's good to think on that probably. The staff earlier this week, uh, some of us took some time to think and pray about this, pre- this passage and ultimately uh, what questions might some of you have after the teaching on this passage. And we all kind of thought of pretty much the same types of questions. Questions along the lines of, okay, I know that I'm supposed to be a loving neighbor to others, but what if I feel like Somebody's taking advantage of me. Or how about if I'm going to give money to somebody? Well, what if I'm nervous that they're going to use it for drugs, alcohol, other nefarious things? I know I'm supposed to be a neighbor, but I can't possibly meet these standards at all times. We kept talking about these types of questions for a little bit. And at one point, Pastor Adam actually astutely pointed out, like, hey, isn't this the same type of question that the expert in the law asked Jesus when he asked, well, who who exactly is my neighbor? You see, the expert in the law was concerned with logistics. He wanted to figure out who exactly was his neighbor, who wasn't, who did he need to care about, who didn't he need to care about. He was concerned with logistics. And in the same way, when we start concerning ourselves with questions of what do we do if, how am I supposed to fulfill that, we too are concerning ourselves with logistics. I can, st- I can try and stand up here and teach you what to do in every single situation, in every single context, but it's impossible. And it's impossible for you to go home and try and think through every possible situation of when you encounter somebody in need. What you can do is ask the question, am I truly a loving neighbor? In seeking out how to be a good neighbor, we tend to ask the wrong questions. We get hung up on logistics when we should be asking, am I a loving neighbor? Because that is what you can control. How you enter these situations is what you can control, what you can work on in your faith. When you encounter somebody in need, is your first thought skepticism? Or is it generosity? Do you enter in with love? Or do you just ignore these people? Loving your neighbor as yourself goes far beyond being kind and polite. And we need to start asking ourselves if we are truly loving neighbors. 
So that's one of the major interpretations of this parable, the social justice interpretation as I have coined it. The other interpretation is what I will call the gospel-centric interpretation. The gospel-centric interpretation. Will it cool down a little bit? When we see the extent to which the Samaritan cares for the man in need, it is very inspiring, but it can be greatly overwhelming. Questions of, does God really expect me to truly care for all people to this extent at all times? That's impossible. And the answer to that question is yes and no to an extent. Yes, we are given this example to show what it takes to fulfill the law's demands, to fulfill the law of loving your neighbor as yourselves. But God is not blind to our human condition. God is not blind to the fact that we all humans are incapable of living up to the standards of the Good Samaritan at all times. We need a Savior. In essence, this parable serves as a pointer to Jesus. We are incapable of meeting these standards at all times. We cannot fulfill the law's requirements, and therefore, we need a Savior. It is not, we do not save ourselves by our works. It is by grace, grace alone. That is it. But maybe you're here today and you are motivated by works, maybe subconsciously. Your faith is predicated on the idea that you have to keep doing good things or God's going to get disappointed or mad at you. And so you keep trying to do good things. And you do more good things. But when you mess up, it haunts you. It sticks with you. You start to question yourself and even your standing with God. I've always been really, really bad at extreme sports. Anywhere from surfing to skateboarding, everything in between, I am really bad at it. And it is not for lack of trying because I have tried to great extents. Uh, I grew up near a lake up near the Sacramento area, and it was a very common summer activity to go boating with friends. And so one day when I was probably about 10 years old, I went boating with some friends and his family. And at one point, the wakeboard got brought out. And I had tried before, but I figured I'd give it another shot. Why not? Maybe something will change. Nothing changed. (laughs) I failed, and I failed, and I failed. I got up once for about two seconds and then fell flat on my face. And when I did, that's so funny. When I did that, I forgot to let go of the rope. And so what felt like an eternity was probably only like five to ten seconds. I was being dragged underwater behind the boat. No water getting all up in my nose. It was painful. And all I needed to do to make it stop was just let go of the rope. So for those of you here today who are motivated by works, 
You're kind of like I was, being dragged behind that boat, just beating yourself up and battering yourself by your own standards. All the while, God has always been there saying, just let go. It's finished. Nothing you do will make me love you any more or less than I already do. Nothing you do will change your standing with me. So it's kind of weird, but, and I know it's a bit more complex than this, but if you are somebody who's motivated by works and these standards for yourself, maybe you just need to take a deep breath and let go. Lean into Christ. Lean into the saving work that he did for you through his death and resurrection. We don't stop doing good deeds, but your good deeds should be derivative of this great love for you and not some sense of trying to appease God or even your own conscience. This parable shows that we are insufficient to the law's requirements. We need a Savior, and thank goodness we have one in Christ. I feel like there's a sense of tension in this passage, especially when we look at these two different interpretations. Because on one side, it's, it's grace and grace alone. The other side is, well, you should, this is what it means to truly love your neighbor as yourself. They do go together, but to me, sometimes it feels like tension, especially when I'm trying to communicate that to you guys. Because whenever I say, we need, as Christians, we need to be doing good deeds, I always feel like I need to back that up with, but, but, but you're not saved by your deeds. And at the same time, when I tell you guys, you're saved by grace and grace alone, I always feel the need to back that up with, but you need to go outside of yourself. Share this love with others. It's kind of a weird tension that, as Christians, I feel like we live in a lot of the time. I'm not sure we're supposed to solve, solve that tension either. So as we go from here today, I think there are two major charges for us in this passage that kind of reflect the two sides of this tension. For some of us, we are, as I already described, motivated by good works, probably subconsciously. And we're always trying to appease God and make our conscience clean. To those of you, I think this parable... He's trying to tell you to relax a little bit. Understand that nothing you do will change your standing with God or his love for you. We are saved by grace and grace alone. To those of you who may find yourselves resonating with this, I leave you with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then there are some of us who are very at peace and rest in this knowledge that we are indeed saved by grace and grace alone. And that's awesome, but maybe you don't do much with that. You have this knowledge, you have this understanding of God's great love for you, but you don't step outside of yourself. 
You don't see the people in need and engage with them, but rather you pass by. And for those people that resonate with this, let this parable serve to, quite frankly, get off your butt a little bit and serve your community. When you see the hurting, the orphans, the widows, the least of these, may this parable be a reminder of what it means to truly love others as you love yourself and follow the example of the Good Samaritan. We have a lot of great ministries here at Nova, uh, from Laundry Love, Feeding the Hungry, the house build that's coming up. These are great jumping off points. Just get involved. It's a great time. You get to hang out with people that you hopefully like and do something meaningful for hurting people. I hope, though, that um, engaging in these types of ministries doesn't become like a checklist. Okay, I did my good thing, and I can go back to thinking about myself now. Loving your neighbor as yourself means in every aspect of life. So that when you do see someone who's hurting or in need, you are ready to engage with them. So if you find yourself resonating with this, I leave you guys with James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So as you leave here, maybe you will get lunch with friends, or even just on the car ride home, whoever you're with, Maybe a good point of discussion is talking about, well, which side of this tension do you tend to find yourself on? And just let that be a jumping off point for discussion. But ultimately, I hope and trust that you will go in the knowledge and assuredness of God's great love for you and the saving work of Christ through his death and resurrection, and that you can ultimately rest in that. Amen?